thing that's true about life is as we get older, that list of things that we really would like to do in life that we know we'll never be able to do, that list gets longer and longer, doesn't it? All those things that were adventuresome sort of things that you'd love to do if you were back in your 20s and didn't have very much responsibility. The older you get, the older your body gets, the more responsibility you accumulate then the more of those adventuresome things that you find that you'll just never, never get around to doing. As I ponder about that, I think about the list of things, those, those adventuresome sort of things that I'll never get a chance to do that I would love to have the opportunity to do. And I think near the top of that list is this. Now don't laugh. Near the top of that list is sailing on the open ocean. I don't mean sailing on a cruise ship or a fishing boat. I mean sailing in a tall ship in the open ocean. I just think that that would just be so incredibly adventuresome. Sailing in those tall ships like they used to be 200 years ago. You know, they still have those. People still sail around the world in those tall ships. And they go to different ports and they sail across the open ocean. I think that would be so amazingly adventuresome. To be out in the open ocean with no motor pushing you along, just the wind and all the canvas and the sound of the ship cutting through the water and the creak of the wood as the ship is rocking back and forth, that would be something that I would, if I was 20 again with no responsibility in life, I think I would take a year and do that. Because the idea of sailing in the open ocean is just a very enticing sort of idea, a very adventuresome sort of thing. I mean, think about how many books have been written in which the context, the setting of the story was the open ocean, sailing on the ocean? Or how many movies have been set in the, in the setting of sailing in the open ocean? You could probably think now of the top ten movies, the ten best movies you've ever seen, and probably four of them were set on the open ocean, sailing across the ocean like that. Well, the Scriptures also tell us stories of sailing on the open ocean, Several stories, in fact. The story of Jonah. We think of the story of Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. We think of Jesus walking on the water. A number of stories in Scripture come to us in the setting of sailing on the open ocean. But this one today that we turn to today is the daddy of them all. This is Acts chapter 27. This is the story of Paul's shipwreck on the way to Rome. This, is, this has to be one of the top, most exciting stories in our Scriptures Acts chapter 27 is where we are. If you want to use a pew Bible, then turn to page 936 for that. We uh, remember what has happened recently. Paul has languished for two years now in a Caesarean prison. He's pleaded his case before Felix, before Festus, before Agrippa. He's gotten no justice from any of those guys. He has pleaded his case now to Caesar. He's appealed to Caesar. And so on his way to Rome is where he now needs to go. And he's about to begin this voyage now to Rome. Paul finally now is going to be on his way to Rome. This is something that has been building ever since chapter 19. If you remember the conclusion of the Ephesian elders passage, we read this from chapter 19, verse 21. Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And that has dominated Paul's life ever since. He knew he had to get to Jerusalem But after leaving Jerusalem, he knew that his destination had to be Rome, and this is what he's been pushing for ever since. Now, the voyage to Rome is going to begin. So beginning from chapter chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, 
We're just going to walk through the chapter as, uh, as we normally do. We, um, again, have to make it through a whole chapter this morning in order to have a complete story before us. So beginning from chapter, tw- chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. So we, know, we notice right away there that Paul again switches pronouns back to the first person pronoun, we, which tells us that this is beginning another section, the final section, in which Luke is narrating events that he was part of. So we begin, I was decided that we should sail for Italy, that they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So this fellow Julius is a centurion and he's given charge, he and his soldiers are given charge over Paul, transporting Paul to Rome, from Caesarea to Rome. Now verse 2, and embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So they find this ship um, at this port called Adramitium, and they sequester a ship to take them uh, to Rome. They, pay, they buy passage on this ship, um, which is a, a little bit surprising to us. You know, we, we, we hear a lot about the Roman Empire and the Roman army, but you've never heard about the Roman navy because there was no such thing. The, Ro- the Empire of Rome never had a navy, which is surprising to us. They never had any ships. So whenever Roman officials or the Roman army needed to travel over water, they would just buy passage. They would sequester passage on private ships, which is what Julius does here. He, he sequesters passage aboard a privately owned ship. And being a privately owned ship, that means that Luke and Aristarchus can also just buy passage on this same ship. So they all get together, this Aristarchus, uh, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, we've heard of him before. He's going to accompany Paul to Rome. Now later on, he's going to be referred to as a prisoner. So we don't know if he's a prisoner at this point, or if later on he'll be arrested in Rome. But Aristarchus, we've heard of him before in Luke. Verse 3, Now the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So once again, the pattern continues. Paul seems to, to win the favor of every Roman military personnel that's placed in charge of him. Remember Lysias and how he won the favor of Lysias. Lysias went on to save his life four times. Now we see the same thing with Julius. Julius treats him kindly. We don't know exactly how it was that Paul connected with Julius, but somehow he has. We read from the letter to the Philippians of how the rapport that Paul has with the the Roman guards in Rome as he writes the letter to the Philippians. So Paul just seems to establish a rapport with the Roman soldiers that are placed in, in, uh, in custody. Over, he's placed in their custody. So something about the character of, of Paul, the moral fiber of Paul, is something that these people who in keeping watch over him, guarding him, they're obviously spending a lot of time with him. Sometimes they're chained to him. And in spending a lot of time with Paul, they seem to be won over by Paul. And they seem to, uh, Paul seems to earn their favor. So again, Julius treated him kindly, but look at what Julius does. Julius gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now I find that to be remarkable. Here they are in the port city of Sidon, and Julius gives Paul the freedom to go to the Christians that are there in Sidon and be cared for. Maybe care for him, care for his physical needs perhaps, because in the ancient days, in the ancient times, when you bought passage on a ship, it didn't come with your food. They didn't serve your food on the ship. You had to bring your own food. So maybe they're supplying him with food for the voyage, or, or in some other way, they're caring for his physical needs. They're certainly praying over him and fellowshipping with him and ministering to him. 
But it's remarkable that Julius would give Paul the freedom to leave and go and be cared for by these other Christians. I mean, the temptation would certainly be there for any prisoner who is in a strange port city under guard of the Romans, and the Romans say, go and be back at certain, a certain time because the ships leave. And certainly the temptation is there to just sort of disappear. Disappear into the underground of Sidon. And we remember the penalty. If a Roman soldier allowed a prisoner to escape, the penalty was death. So literally, Julius is trusting Paul with his life. I find that to be remarkable. That Paul has won the favor, has won the trust so deeply of this man Julius that Julius is ready to trust Paul with his very life. If Paul doesn't show up in time for the ship to leave, Julius' life is over. You know, that should be the testimony of all of us, shouldn't it? When the world looks at us, they should think of us in terms of, of moral failure would be so foreign to us. The world should look at us and say, you know, I don't necessarily like those people. I don't necessarily agree with what they believe in. But you know what? I could trust them with my life if I had to. That should be the testimony of all of, of Jesus' children. It's certainly the testimony of Paul as he wins the favor here of Julius. Now continuing... Verse 4, and putting out to sea from where we sailed. So Paul obviously showed back up in time for the ship to leave. So putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, which basically meant that the ship sailed on the opposite side of the land mass of Cyprus from the prevailing winds. So it was protected from the prevailing winds, which were getting kind of harsh. We'll talk about that in a bit. So they sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia in Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So they come to the second port city and they find this ship sailing from Alexandria to the Roman Empire. Alexandria, of course, was Egypt. The Roman Empire bought all of its wheat and all of its grain from Egypt. And so there would be these huge grain ships, these huge wheat ships that were Egyptian ships that were constantly taking wheat and grain to the Roman Empire. And these wheat ships were, would be abnormally large for ancient ships. They would be anywhere from 100 to 150 feet long, 30 to 40 feet wide, which is a tremendous ship for ancient days. And so they find they, they buy passage on this wheat ship from Alexandria, sailing for Italy. They get on board, verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, that's an interesting phrase, as the wind did not allow us to go farther. Some of us are aware of the fact that in the Greek language, the word wind and spirit are the same word. So it's just interesting how Luke phrases it here. The wind or the spirit did not allow us to go farther. He's not saying that the Holy Spirit was preventing them from sailing, but it's interesting how he phrases that there. We were reminded of chapter 16 when the spirit would not allow Paul to go into Asia. But the wind did not allow us to go farther, so we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmon. Sailing under the lee of Crete. Verse 8, coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. So the fast that he's speaking of is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year for the Jew. And Paul says, or Luke says that the fast is now over. The, uh, the fast of Yom Kippur always falls in late September or early October. In fact, we've already had Yom Kippur 
for this year. So it always falls late September or early October. So Luke says that that has passed. So they're now into mid-October. Sailing on the Mediterranean in the ancient world was a matter of doing it at the right time. From September 14th through November 14th, the general rule was that sailing upon the Mediterranean was done at great, great risk. It was highly dangerous to sail between September 14th and November 14th because of the increasing frequency of the storms. After November 14th, from then until the end of February, sailing on the Mediterranean was considered in the ancient world to be impossible. And so no sailing was done because of the frequency of storms until after February. Ancient ships could not weather storms in the same way that modern ships can weather storms. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But because of the increasing frequency of the storms, sailing was highly dangerous between September 15th, which they're past, or September 14th, which they're past, and November 14th. And so Paul says, that, or, or Luke says, the fast is past, and the fast is past. And then uh, Paul advised them, verse 10, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be of in, with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul says, I advise you in this way, it's too dangerous for us to continue on to Rome now. Why don't we winter right here? And then when the winter breaks in February, then we'll continue on to Rome. Now, Paul is not speaking some sort of prophecy here. God's not speaking this to him, and he's speaking a prophecy from God. Paul is just speaking from wisdom. He's just speaking from wisdom because Paul is a very, very well-traveled sea traveler in the ancient world. He, Paul traveled on the Mediterranean Sea Numerous, numerous times. We've already read in the story of Acts, the first three missionary journeys of Paul, Paul has taken no less than eight journeys on the Mediterranean. And in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that he was shipwrecked three times. All three of those shipwrecks were prior to the, to the events of the Acts story. So Paul is a very experienced sea traveler on the Mediterranean. He's not a sailor, but he's very experienced traveling on the Mediterranean. And so he knows. You know what? Everybody knows that after September 14th, it's very dangerous to travel on the Mediterranean. So I suggest that we winter right here and then proceed on to Rome. Now think about that for a minute. Nobody on the ship wants to get to Rome more than Paul. Paul's not being taken to Rome against his will. He's not having to be drugged onto the ship and drugged to Rome. Nobody wants to get to Rome more than Paul wants to get to Rome. And yet... Here he perceives that, you know what? It would be unnecessarily dangerous for us to go to Rome now. Let's just winter right here and then we'll proceed on. So there's some wisdom in there. God knows, or Paul knows, that it is God's will that, that Paul go to Rome. And God has told Paul that he is going to Rome. And so what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't say, you know what, this is the will of God. I'm just going to throw caution to the wind. Whatever, God will protect me. And let's just go. Instead, he uses some common sense here. And he knows that Rome's not going anywhere, and it'll be much safer if they wait out the winter here in the port where they are. There's some wisdom in that for us. We know that God's, God's will for His children is to be made into the image of Christ, to be made into more holy creatures for Him. We know that God expresses His will to us in His Word, but sometimes, you know, we come across those Christians who can take the will of God and say, well, the will of God always overrides common sense. For example, you've heard of the Christian parents who maybe will have a, a child to get very sick, maybe sick with cancer, and they'll say, 
we, we're not going to do any medical treatment for our child because we have faith that God will heal him and medical treatment is the opposite of faith. That would, if we took him for medical treatment or her for medical treatment, that would betray the fact that we don't have any faith. So we're going to just trust God to heal him. And I think that goes against the counsel of Scripture. Paul here knows that it's God's will that he make it to Rome, but he's, at the same time, he's not going to test God by putting himself into unnecessary danger. He's not going to put God to the test, so to speak. So he advises that they wait out the winter there. Verse 11, But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, which makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that he would pay more attention to the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship than a prisoner who's a passenger of the ship. So verse 12, And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So they want to make it to this next port called Phoenix because that, that harbor is a westerly-facing harbor. Where they are in Fair Havens, despite the name, Fair Havens is not a very safe harbor. It's an easterly-facing harbor. And all the storms in the Mediterranean, the big ones anyway, are northeasters, as we'll read in just a minute. They're northeaster storms, which means that they come from the northeast. So a harbor that's facing the east means that the ships in that harbor will face the brunt of the storm. Now the most dangerous place for a ship to be in a storm is in the harbor. That's the most dangerous place for a ship to be when a storm comes, is anchored in a harbor. It's much safer for a ship to be out at sea when a storm comes. You may remember last year when Sandy came through, you remember this ship? If it'll show up on our screen there, you remember this ship? That's the HM, it was the HMS Bounty. It was a replica of an 18th century tall ship. Uh, and um, it was anchored in New Jersey when Sandy came along. You remember that? Hurricane Sandy was coming and they made the decision to go out to sea into the storm because it was safer for the ship to be in the open waters than in a harbor. Ended up sinking in Hurricane Sandy. But that's the idea is that a ship in a harbor is not safe at all when the storm comes. And so the majority decides, let's go out to sea. Which is another reminder for us that the majority does not always know what's best. The majority decides to go out to sea, and obviously we're going to find out that that was not the wisest decision to make. But somehow we just think that if the majority thinks something, that it must be right. That must be the best thing. And I think that comes from our democratic form of government, the way that we're raised. We're, we're, just, we're just sort of taught that what the majority thinks is what we should do. And that's simply not always the case. For example, in Exodus 32, the majority of people wanted to build a golden calf and worship that. That obviously wasn't the right thing to do. So here the majority, they want to leave the harbor and they want to go out to sea, which is what they do. Now continuing, verse 13, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a north, the northeaster, there's that storm, the northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship they, was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So this storm comes, this northeaster storm comes, and they give, they give way to it and were drift, driven along. Ancient ships could do virtually nothing in a storm. Ships today with engines and, and motors, they can, they can do a whole lot more in a storm than ancient ships could. Because, but but uh, the fact is that a ship 
only has control of itself if it's moving. Just like an airplane. An airplane has no control unless it's moving. Same thing with a ship. The ship is controlled by a rudder, and that rudder only does something if the ship is moving through the water. And so when the storm hits, of course, they've got to take the sails in because the sails wouldn't survive the storm. So now they have no movement, which means they have zero control whatsoever. They give way, and they have no control whatsoever. They're just being driven along by the waves. You can just picture in your mind now the waves are crashing. The ship is perhaps spinning. It's going different directions. Is zero control at all. Verse 16 now, running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat which would have been the dinghy that was being pulled behind the boat, a smaller boat that would be used to shuttle people back and forth from the shore to the boat if the boat went, or the ship went somewhere that there wasn't a harbor. So they have this dinghy that they're trailing, that's trailing behind them. They, with difficulty, they pull that in. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. So that meant that they, would, they took ropes and literally passed ropes underneath the ship and cinched those ropes up as tightly as they could. Because this is, this is a wooden ship, and it's being stressed a great deal by all the waves that are pounding it from side to side and forward and back. And so this wooden ship is in, in danger of literally just falling apart. So they wrap ropes around the ship, and they cinch them up as tightly as they can to, in, in an effort to keep the ship from falling apart. Then fearing that we would run aground on the Surtis, they lowered the gear which was probably, you know, Luke's not a sailor, so he didn't tell us exactly, but that's probably something like a floating anchor that they would drag behind the ship for the purpose of slowing them down and, and giving them a little, bit, a little bit of stability there. So they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. They were driven along. Verse 18, Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, lighten the ship, Throw the cargo overboard. And then verse 19, And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Many days now. The storm has been going on multiple days. And because of the storm, everything is completely clouded over. In the daytime, they don't see the sun. In the nighttime, they don't see the stars. Which means... They have no idea where they are and no idea which direction they're going. This is a thousand years before the magnetic compass. They have no idea where they are or where they're headed to. Many days they didn't see the sun or the stars and no small tempest lay on us. This is a storm of epic proportion. Luke sort of understates it there. No small tempest lay upon us. So, in your mind... You got this picture. You've seen it in the movies. A ship that is in the middle of just a raging storm. Wind is howling so loud that you can hardly hear people yelling right in front of you. Waves are crashing left and right. Everything is soaking wet. Thunder, lightning. You've got that picture in your mind that Paul and the others are on the decks of this, on the deck of this ship and they are in the middle of an epic Epic storm. No small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now reflect on that phrase for just a moment. All hope of our being saved was abandoned. And folks, that is, that is as close to hell as 
we could get here on earth. Abandoning hope. Because that's what hell is all about. That there is zero hope of ever leaving that place. And so that, that has to be one of, the, one of the most frightening things about eternal damnation is the abandoning of all hope that that ever will end or you will ever leave that place. Luke says here that they abandoned all hope of being saved. Now, humans have to have hope. We can't survive without hope. I know sometimes we, things get tough and we'll say things like, you know, it was hopeless, or I feel hopeless. And You've never been hopeless. You may feel like hope is very dim, but you have never been without hope. And so Luke says that they have abandoned all hope. You can imagine the mood aboard that ship. You can imagine. There's, there's three Christ followers on the ship, and we would assume that 273 of them are lost. We don't know. 273 pagans on the ship. Can you imagine the opportunity for the Gospel? You think Paul is speaking the Gospel at every opportunity he can? They abandon all hope. Then verse 21, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. You know, nobody likes, and I told you so. Nobody likes to be told, I told you, told you so. But that's what Paul is saying. I did advise you against this. And what Paul is doing is he's trying to reestablish some credibility among them. Because he perceives that they're without hope. And Paul needs to speak some hope to them. And so in order to do that, they need to listen to him. So he needs to establish some credibility. You know, I was the one who said we shouldn't even leave. We should, we should be at Crete right now. And if we'd listen to me, we would still be back there. So he's trying to instill some amount of hope in them. But verse 22 here, he just, he just gives them a shot in the arm of hope. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Take heart, there will be no loss of life among you, only the ship. Back in chapter 23, Jesus appeared to Paul in the Jerusalem prison. And Jesus promised Paul, you will testify of me in Rome just like you've testified of me here in Jerusalem. And that was an unconditional promise to Paul. Jesus didn't say to Paul, you'll, you'll go to Rome if this happens and if that happens and if you do this and you don't do that. Jesus promised, you will go to Rome and testify for me. Jesus didn't, however, promise that the journey would be smooth. He didn't promise that the sailing would be smooth on the way to Rome. He promised you'll go there and you'll get there but he didn't say that the sailing would be smooth, and the sailing obviously has been anything but smooth. So, Paul is in this storm because he is obeying Christ. Folks, don't be surprised when you make the hard choice of obedience and find that you're facing the, the worst storm of your life. Don't be surprised when that happens. As, as Peter will say, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when your obedience to Christ 
means that the greatest storm of your life is opened up upon you. I think that's one of the greatest discouragements for, for new Christians. Because, you know what, most of the time people come to Christ at a point in their life when everything else is broken. And everything else is falling apart and they, and, and they just don't have any other hope. And, and that's when they call out to Christ and they surrender to Him. And naturally they think that now that they've surrendered to the Creator of the universe, that things are going to be better. And oftentimes they're not, but in fact they're worse. And they find that the storm that they were in was nothing compared to the storm that they're now in, now that they are Christ's followers. But don't be surprised when your obedience puts you into the greatest storm of your life. Jesus told us that it would be this way. Paul told us it would be this way. The Scriptures testify to us that the way of following Christ is narrow and it's hard and it's guaranteed to have storms. Now, if a pathway in your life is guaranteed to be problematic, to have difficulties and storms, then when those things come, we should treat that as affirmation that we're on the right path, right? If somebody tells you that this path that you need to walk from here to there is a really rocky path, then when the stones hurt your feet, you should take that to be assurance that you're on the right path. F.B. Meyer put it this way. He said, if I am told that I will, am to take a journey that is da a dangerous trip, every jolt along the way will remind me that I am on the right road. Don't be surprised when your obedience puts you into the greatest storm of your life. The disciples were also on a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Remember that one? And they were likewise in that storm because Jesus told them in Matthew 14, He told them to go to the other side. And it was their obedience that put them into the very storm that they faced. So Paul faces this storm because he is in obedience to Christ. But you know what? He's not the only one facing the storm. There's 275 other people facing the same storm. Three of them are on that ship because they have obeyed Christ. Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. Beyond that, 273 other people are facing the same storm that Paul is facing, and they're facing it not because of their obedience, they're facing it just because the storm is there. And you know what? We will all face storms in our life. But the difference between what Paul faces and what the rest of the sailors face is that Paul's storm is guaranteed to have purpose. Paul faces this storm and it is assured to him that this storm has purpose in his life. The purpose, Paul will tell the Romans in Romans 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. And so if we're going to face storms in our life, how much more comforting to know that those storms, if we face them with faith, those storms will serve a purpose, a positive purpose in our life. The rest of these sailors are facing a storm that has no purpose. Their only purpose is to survive it. So he says to them, there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of, the Lord, of, of God, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all these who sail with you. So in essence, Paul is saving their life. Because Paul is on this ship, the others will survive because of Paul. 
the angel appears to him. We know of all the times that Jesus appeared to Paul or angels appeared to him, rode to Damascus and the temple in Jerusalem. We remember in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. We remember in the Jerusalem cell in Acts chapter 23. We remember 2 Timothy when the Lord appeared to him once again. God has appeared, the Lord has appeared to Paul numerous times. Now an angel appears to him and speaks these comforting words, reminding him, first of all, of the promise that Jesus said in chapter 23, but also giving him additional information. That additional information is that not only will you make it, Paul, but everybody else on the ship will make it too. So he says to them, this is the real hope. My God has come to me and assured me once again, not only will I make it, but so will you. So that's the assurance that Paul has. But look at the assurance. that it, What is it about the angel's statements? What is it about this truth in Paul's life that he finds so assuring? He says it in verse 23. Take a look here in 23. The God to whom I belong and whom I worship. The God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Paul, Paul receives great assurance that God will not leave him. God will not forsake him in this storm. Because first of all, he belongs to God. He's God's property. He's the property of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ calls us His sheep. We are the sheep of His pasture. Paul tells the Corinthians, you're not your own. You're bought and paid for with a price. You are the property of God. And so Paul finds great assurance in that. The God to whom I belong. The God who owns me. The God of the storm. Whom I am His property. He has assured me of this. Secondly, the God whom I worship has assured me of this. The God whom I worship or whom I serve. We can look at it that way. Paul is assured that God will not leave him in this storm because Paul is in the storm because he's serving Christ. There's another servant of God who found himself on a storm on this very sea centuries before. Jonah. But that storm was different. He was in that storm not because he was serving Christ, but because he was avoiding serving God. Paul is here because he is serving God. And so he's assured that God will not leave him. God will not abandon him. So verse 25, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. The picture I have in my mind here, again, you've seen the movies You've seen the people on the deck of the ship and the ship is rocking back and forth and the wind and the lightning and the waves and the crashing water all around them and they're shouting to one another. And in my mind, I've, just, I've got this picture that Charlton Heston is playing Paul and he's just shouting, have faith, have faith. God has assured me of this and He will not abandon me. Now verse 27, when the 14th night had come, 14th night, two weeks the storm has been going. For the, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. And you see in your footnotes there, that's about 120 feet. A little farther, they took another sounding and found 15 fathoms. So land apparently is coming closer. Now it's the middle of the night, they can't see anything. But they sense that land is coming, perhaps they hear the surf, they take the soundings and that affirms for them it looks like land is a company, but we can't see anything. So now they become afraid that they're going to run aground on some rocks. So verse 29, fearing that we might run on, the, run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now, you want to ask the question there, pray to who? Who are they praying to? 
Certainly Luke and Aristarchus and Paul are praying to God. Perhaps a lot more are too, because again, the field could not have been more fertile for the gospel than on board this ship during this two-week storm. But they're praying to God, which is what God wants. That's His desire. When you face the storms in your life, it is God's desire that you cry out to Him from that storm. Joseph Screven was a young 25-year-old Irishman who had the whole world in front of him. He was engaged to be married to the love of his life. And on the night before their wedding, his fiancée was drowned. He was heartbroken and just felt that he just had to get away to forget about his fiancée that died the night before their wedding. So he gets on board a ship and sails to Canada. Gets to Canada, eventually meets another young lady and falls in love again. They're engaged to be married and she is killed too. And it is then that Joseph Scriven sits down and writes these words. Have we trials and temptations troubled with a load of care? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. That's what God desires in the midst of that storm. He wants to hear your voice crying out in in desperate need. And so they're praying, they're crying out. Certainly Paul and the others are praying as well. Then, Then verse 30, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. The soldiers cut away the ropes from the ship's boat and let it go. So the sailors are going to pretend to take the dinghy and maybe take the anchors and set the anchors at a better place or something like that. Paul knows that that's not what they're going to do. They really want to get in the dinghy and they want to escape themselves. And he knows that if they do that, everybody else on the ship is doomed. So he tells the centurion, they're not doing what they tell you they're going to do. They're trying to escape. And you can't let them escape. And the centurion and the soldiers, guess what? Now they're listening to Paul. So they cut the dinghy away and let the dinghy go on its own. And everybody's still on the ship. Verse 33, And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense or terror and without food, having taken nothing. Fourteen days! And they haven't been able to eat. You can imagine the seasickness. I've never been to, to, to sea myself, but I can imagine the seasickness that you would incur. I once heard of a woman who was on a seagoing fishing vessel and it was a little bit of a storm and she got really sick and so she staggers up to the captain of the, of the vessel and holds out the car keys to her brand new car and says, this is yours if you will just take me back right now. Seasickness, if you've ever had it, must be an incredible, incredibly difficult thing. You can imagine now, 14 days in the storm, nothing to eat for two weeks. So Paul says, verse 34, Therefore I urge you to take some food, and it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So Paul gives them some very practical advice here. You know, faith is a spiritual thing, right? But sometimes we think that faith is only spiritual, in the sense that it's some sort of mystical thing that we can't understand. But faith is a very practical thing. And being a practical thing 
Sometimes it is helped in practical ways. Here's what I mean. Paul understands here that the sailors on the ship, they are spirit bodies. And when their bodies are weak and their bodies are sick, then it is harder to have faith. Have you noticed that to be true? When your body hurts, when your body is tired, when your body is hungry, isn't it harder to be godly? Isn't it harder to have faith when your body is not well? And so sometimes some of the most practical advice that we can receive is that, you know, when you're fighting spiritual warfare, one of the best things you can do is just simply take care of your body. Sounds very, very unspiritual, doesn't it? But it's scriptural. What does God do for Elijah? Remember Elijah's running from Jezebel after the Mount Carmel event? God takes Elijah to a cave and gives him rest and sends ravens to feed him. Sometimes one of the best things you can do for spiritual warfare is eat a good, eat a good meal and take a long nap. Sounds really unspiritual, but it is true. When your body is weak and hungry and hurting and tired, it is more difficult to be faithful. Now, that's not shifting blame to say, you know, hey, when, uh, when I spoke rudely to you, that wasn't me. I, that's just because I had a headache. No, that's blame shifting. It was, it was still you that sinned. But that is to say that some of the, some, sometimes one of the best things you can do to strengthen your faith is just simply take care of your body. So Paul says to them, listen, you need to eat. You hadn't eaten. So, Verse 35, when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. It's remarkable there how much how similar that is to the Lord's Supper passages. The language there is so similar to the Lord's Supper passages. Then verse 36, then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all, in all, 276 persons on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land. They see the land now, but... They don't know what it is. But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, or a sandbar, striking a reef, they ran aground while the land was still a ways away. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So the the ship is now stationary in the water, but the surf is still pounding the ship from behind, and it's starting to break up this wooden ship. Verse 42, The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Because now there's land in sight, so they're thinking, well, maybe the prisoners might jump overboard and swim for the land. And remember the penalty if a Roman soldier allowed a prisoner to escape. The penalty was death. And so they make this reasonable assumption, you know, hey, uh, dead prisoners aren't very good at escaping, so let's just kill the prisoners, and that way we'll at least save our lives. But once again, look now at what Julius does. Julius, Paul has saved Julius's life, and everybody else's. Now Julius will save Paul's life. But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and first make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So the land that they're brought safely to, we'll see in the next passage next week, the land is Malta. 
And all of you probably have in the back of your Bibles a map, and, and one of those maps is the map of Paul's journeys. And if you were to look on that map, you would see that a course from Caesarea to Italy goes right through Malta. In other words, they're right on course. Through all the storm, drifting 14 days at sea, somehow, they're still on course for Rome. Because it's God's plan that Paul go to Rome. Folks, I don't know. I don't know about the storms of your life. I don't know why you're facing the storms that you may be facing. And I don't know how God is managing that for you. Scripture teaches us that God manages the storms of our life very differently. Sometimes He speaks to them and calms them. Sometimes He comes walking to you miraculously in the storm. Sometimes He carries you wet and exhausted and, and dripping through the storm as He does for Paul. Sometimes He just lets it seem as though the storm is going to have you. But He never lets you go. You're in His hand the whole time. Even if the storm does take you, you're in His hand the whole time. But what He promises us is this. If we face it with faith, knowing that God has a purpose in it, and knowing that that purpose is a good one, He promises us that we will come out the other side more like His Son, and He promises us He will never leave us, and He will never forsake us.